0: I'm going to sit at the welcome table, I'm going to sit at the welcome table, one of these days, hallelujah.
1: Archiver is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council and is part of the Fountain City Frequency, family of podcasts.
0: Table. One of these days, one of these days. I'm gonna eat at the Woolworths lunch counter. I'm gonna eat at that lunch counter one of these days. Hallelujah.
1: Anyone with a passing knowledge of the civil rights movement knows about the lunch counter sit ins at the Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina. That's the actor Xavier Carnegie singing about it in a video produced by the National Museum of American History. A protest that started with four people on February 1, 1960, grew to hundreds of protesters by July. Lunch counter sit-ins at times dominated the news in the South. I'm Wayne Ferris. Tonight's subject, are sit-in strikes justifiable, is particularly pertinent to Florida's future. This Wayne Ferris commentary aired just a few months after WCKT went on the air in Miami. CKT is now WSVN. The Florida sit-ins started a few weeks after Greensboro. Dr. Brown, what do you hope to accomplish by this demonstration?
0: We hope to eliminate racial discrimination in all public accommodations here in the city of Miami.
1: But before Greensboro and Miami, there was Dockham Drugstore in Wichita. We like to think of ourselves, us Kansans, as civil rights leaders, the free state, Brown versus Board, abolition, but does our history really back up the claim.
0: I'm gonna eat at the, lunch counter.
1: the podcast I'm gonna is Archiver. The there, episode, there, The Free State Myth, me. Days, I'm your host, Sam Zeff. I think a lot of us can see in our head the black and white film of young black protesters being spit on or even beaten as they sat at lunch counters in the South demanding to be served. Greensboro is probably the best known, but sit-ins happened all across Dixie. But many simply don't know about Dockham Drugs. Well, Dockham's drug Store was a major drugstore located in the center of Wichita. It was a main place for people to go during the lunch hour, for teenagers to go for a hamburger and a Coke. The policy of the store was that They did not serve colored, as we were called at that time. Uh, So if we wanted to get something to purchase to eat, we would have to take it out or stand at the end of the lunch counter, and then we were served in styrofoam containers. That's Carol Hahn. She's being interviewed on C-SPAN 54 years after she ordered a Coke at a lunch counter, mostly reserved for whites. The sit-ins began on July 19, 1958 a year and a half before Greensboro nine other students showed up that day including Galen Vesey.
2: it was de- it was degrading dehumanizing uh, you felt like something was wrong you know it, uh, but you learned to cope with it and to ignore it and there were exceptions on occasion you might have seen a black person even at Dockham's and there was another drugstore around here called Woolsworth and one on the corner called Grants it always, stuck out like a sore thumb when I would come in those establishments and crests across the street where I used to work. On occasion, as I say, you might have seen a black person, but it was almost like an unwritten code. Just don't make a habit of it and don't too many of you come at one time.
1: For three weeks, the students sat at the Dockham lunch counter. They were taunted and insulted, but mostly white customers just went somewhere else and profits plunged. In just three weeks, Dockham's in downtown Wichita was desegregated, as was the entire Rexall chain, a civil rights victory. There were many in Kansas, Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education chief among them. But before Brown, the Kansas Supreme Court desegregated some schools, at least the ones the law allowed. For some, and I'm among them, Civil rights in Kansas began with Quantrell burning Lawrence and ends with Brown. But, of course, that's just not true. And nobody can explain this better than archiver historian Virgil Dean.
2: Saying so Kansas, we call ourselves a free state, the free state fortress or whatever, but we have these Jim Crow practices. And I think that's kind of an, an interesting aspect of this whole story that we maybe can point to with a little bit more pride is there seemed like there were always those people, black and white, who, because of that free state myth, they would point back and say, when there were abuses, when blacks weren't allowed to play uh, intercollegiate sports or they weren't allowed in the movie theaters, some people would say, why is, it so, why is it this way in Kansas? The reason it wasn't or was was because, you know, why wouldn't it be? Kansas was populated by people with similar attitudes of, uh, throughout the northern states. I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning, and that is that myth, of course, is based on some
1: factual information. And and as we fast forward uh, into the late 20th century, Candace does seem to be ahead of the rest of the country in a couple of ways. So there is a desegregation of the lunch counter at Dockham Drugstore in Wichita. Uh, There is the Webb versus School District No. 90 case in Merriam, Kansas, which eventually ends up in the Kansas Supreme Court. Both of these seem to be a a, a prelude uh, to bigger cases, Brown Mm. versus Board of Education. The lunch counter sit-ins through the South in Greensboro, North Carolina, for example. Uh, So we do have that, do we not? We can, yeah, I can hang my hat on that?
2: C- certainly. I mean, and I think that is tied to this idea that, okay, we can be a better place, maybe, or we should be, to a great extent. The first example of this in the courts or throughout the late 19th and, and early 20th century, uh, segregation is practiced in some school district where under the constitutional provision, it shouldn't have been. And every, almost, I think every time, uh, that those get to the Supreme Court of Kansas. The Supreme Court rules for the plaintiffs that no, you can't. There's a case in a famous case in Ottawa in the late in the 1880s, I believe it is. Uh, there's one in Oskaloosa. Uh so there's several of these. And then you have the the Webb case, where uh, in 1947 to 49, the uh, black community, uh, with the assistance of and cooperation of some in the white community like Esther Brown, challenged. A segregated school that is very subpar, and they're they're successful because in that particular school district, actually, when they started the case, they were just asking for equal fa- facilities. Uh, it later becomes, uh, or they're later enforced to integrate because, according to Kansas law, they weren't allowed to uh, to run separate grade schools. Only the larger cities were, according to statute, allowed to run segregated elementary schools until Brown v. Board in 1954, which was the Topeka case, of course, which became nationally important because it uh, brought in the separate but equal doctrine and uh, outlawed all segregation in those areas.
1: The Free State Myth. Here's what the Kansas historian James Liker wrote. How is it, for example, that the same state that advocated Indian genocide and practiced school segregation also became the only state to legally evict the Ku Klux Klan and one of only seven to censor the racist film Birth of a Nation? So our past is a little rockier than I wanted to think. Okay, I can live with that. But how are we doing now?
0: Where does that free state Kansas thing stand? Uh, my name is Clarence Lang, uh, professor and chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at the University of Kansas.
1: When you want to talk about how African American history in Kansas intersects with the present, you talk to Lang. He's written about the Black Freedom Movement and Black urban communities in the Midwest. What's important about Kansas, Lang says, is that it's not the Deep South, that there has always been room for, a lane, if you will, for agitators
0: and change agents. Kansas, as many other sites, was a site of contestation. And so we don't want to, I think, you know, err on the side of, um, you know, uh, racism is the same wherever you go in the United States. I don't believe that's the case. I mean, I think that there are reasons why people came to Kansas and people built communities and, and try to, to, to build lives. So I would say that Kansas is not Mississippi or Alabama in terms of demographics, in terms of historical legacies uh, in the past. But we don't want to go in the other direction of suggesting that that Kansas was also this this liberal bastion. I think the best way to frame it is that Kansas was a site where people could mobilize um, and organize to contest aspects of exclusion and discrimination. And I think that the the mobilization around um, the series of cases that went to the Supreme Court, of which Brown versus Board of Education was was one, um, in a Dockham um, uh, demonstration in Wichita, was that you had black communities and allies who were willing and able and felt um, enough efficacy to organize. I, I, for me, that's, that's, really, that's really the issue, more so than whether that's a reflection of whether the state was progressive or not. It's about the fact that there were spaces through law, through custom, and through people's just actual organization, that folks were able to to widen um, the pathways of um, of opportunity. Given the
1: previous election in Kansas, are you hopeful that it's going to swing back towards what you would describe? I would suspect is a more progressive nature.
0: That's a that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I suppose that I I'm not prepared. Um, to be overjoyed by the fact that the state swung back toward a more moderate <laughs> Republican stance. I mean, because I think that, you know, I, I think that the politics in this country have gone so far to the right, um, you know, that I think we can be perhaps dangerously nostalgic about a, about a more mainstream <laughs> conservatism. Uh, and and I, I kind of reserve my excitement about that. Um, but it does suggest that, as has always been the case, um, Kansas re- does remain, and this we can be hopeful about, it is a site of contestation. And so the matter of um, this state's political complexion, um, that's, not, that's not settled. And I think we can be optimistic about that. Um, that the fact that, you know, when people would ask the question, what's, what's the matter with Kansas? Um, for some, there would be an obvious answer to that. And I think that what we saw in this last election suggests that, that things are, are still dynamic and, and possibly, possibly fluid. And I think that there's always reason to be, to be hopeful um, when, when that occurs. And to the extent that we can think of Kansas as remaining um, a, a laboratory, uh, a site of experimentation, um, one can only hope that, that maybe the results of the election could suggest uh, some possibilities for, for the nation writ large. Um, but that's, you know, that's, a, um, that's an empirical question. We'll see.
1: So more than half a century past Brown and Dockham Drugs and the Webb desegregation case in Johnson County, the answer to the question, where does that Free State, Kansas thing stand, seems to be we'll see. At least that's one answer. And the question is such an important part of the Kansas story. We'll revisit civil rights and the free state myth in future Archiver episodes. And that's Archiver. The podcast is produced by Matt Hodapp in the studios of KCUR 89.3 in Kansas City and is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. Archiver is a co-production of Fountain City Frequency and Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seeland is executive producer. You can see pictures of Greensboro and Dockham at FountainCityFrequency.com. My thanks to KU professor Clarence Lang for sharing his thoughts. Hey, if you like the podcast, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. For my favorite Kansas historian Virgil Dean, I'm Sam Zeff. I'll see you on the next Archiver.